we are sitting in different places, and, and yet I do uh, realize that we have some of our folks who were out today, and I want to encourage you, if you would, through the course of the week, for those that you uh, are not seeing today, that you will, through the course of this week, uh, reach out to them, and uh, please let them know that they are, um, they are missed and, uh, and seek to encourage them uh, and also in, in inquire uh, about their not being here. I know we have some who are out of town, uh, some who are traveling, some who are visiting family and enjoying time with them. Uh, and we may have some who are out sick and for various reasons. So I want to encourage you to do that. If you have your copies of Scripture, if you will, turn to the book of Ezra. You'll find that right after Second Chronicles. Um, so if you're tracking through the Old Testament, that is an Old Testament book. Uh, you have Joshua, Judges, First and Second Samuel, First and Second King, First and Second Chronicles, and then Ezra will be the uh, next book. Um, we're beginning a nine-week series today uh, on the books of Ezra and Nehemiah. So this will carry us up uh, through Advent. So if you're wondering where we're going, there are nine weeks, this being one of them, uh, before we enter into our Advent season. I originally planned to limit our study uh, to Ezra, but um, the more that I studied, I realized it's really hard to separate the two in as much as for a long period of time, uh, Jewish people, Hebrew people uh, recognized it as one book. Uh, if you've ever worked through a, uh, and I was thinking about this regarding messages, I tried to, I, in fact, I asked pastors, uh, several pastors that I know, and I called up some and emailed them. I said, have you ever preached through Ezra? And the answer to that was no, I hadn't preached through Ezra. <laughs> it wasn't why would anyone want to, it was just I haven't done it. And then I knew some who had preached through Nehemiah, but uh, and, and you've probably found this to be true too, and I'm not making light of it. I'm just saying it just seems to be that's what happens if you hear things from Nehemiah. If you happen to have worked through a building program or you've engaged in a church uh, capital stewardship campaign or you've sat under a teaching series on leadership, uh, then probably some of those, most of those uh, have found their place Somewhere in these two books, particularly Nehemiah and leadership and building buildings and walls and, and all these kinds of things. And, and I just want to uh, go ahead and tell you on the front end, I hope you're not disappointed. Uh, this series has nothing to do with any of those things. Um, what we are going to seek to do is we are going to seek to try to find the purpose uh, of these two books because they're incredible but they're often just simply bypassed because I'm going to be honest with you in studying them, they're hard to study. They're hard to figure out. And uh, I don't know that I have yet, but we're going to work together over the course of the next nine weeks and see if we can come to realize uh, why the Holy Spirit uh, was impressed uh, to, to place these on the author's heart, uh, this historical record, uh, and we're going to try to work through that. Before we read our text today, I think it'll probably help us, though, to kind of set uh, the historical context for the accounts of these two books. So we've got a kind of a long introduction today. We won't revisit this introduction. 
but I'm afraid that if we don't have this historical background, we, we, we may struggle with even finding out and realizing what really is happening and what's going on. Now, if you look at any book of the Bible, one of the first things that we do when we study it, we want to know what is the genre. In other words, uh, if, we're, uh, if we're studying Peter, we realize that we're studying an epistle, it's a letter. If we're studying Romans, the same is the case. And, and as we are working through our men and women's Bible study right now, we are working through what? We're working through an epistle. We're working through a letter, the letter to the church at Philippi. But this is a historical record. Uh, in fact, it is a history uh, of Israel or a portion of the history uh, of Israel. And it is there for a particular reason. So if you're a history buff, you're probably going to love some of this. But we want to get past the history to get to what this record of history is there for. In other words, uh, we, we are, we're going to find out what happened along the way, but why did these things happen and what is communicated in them that are important uh, to us and for us as a church. As we began this morning, we, we began with a psalm that was one of the psalms of ascent. That is one of the Psalms that whenever Israel making her way, whoever they were, when they were making their pilgrimage and they were journeying back to Jerusalem to go to the temple to worship during the times of festival, they, this was one of the Psalms that they, would, uh, that they would sing as they were making their way to Jerusalem. They're going to Zion. They're going to this city. Uh, and so in as much as we have already set the framework uh, for uh, a city, and we are looking for a city that is the true Zion, the true place, the presence of God. Uh, we are looking for that place. We are going there to worship, and we worship along the way, and our life to some degree should be an ascent psalm, a song in our life as we move forward and as we move toward the city Zion. And so that's where we started. And then we recognize that we, uh, in doing that, we are moving away from darkness and we are ultimately moving to light, which is exactly what took place in the Exodus. And uh, we've already been, Adam pointed us to that. This is almost as we look at these texts, we're looking at a second Exodus and they're, they're just tremendous parallels there. And as we are working toward that city and looking toward that city. We're looking away from darkness and we're looking to uh, the ultimate light. And so we're going to see that framework and that picture as we continue to talk through this. But I want us to go back and look at this post-exilic literature. In other words, post-exile. Uh, we go all the way back to Genesis chapter 12 and uh, just kind of follow along all the way back to Genesis chapter 12, we read the account of God calling a man uh, whose name was Abram away from his home to go to Cana, which was a land that God had promised him was going to give him and, gave, and did give him and his family. Uh, now, I want you to remember that Abram was a pagan, okay? So it's not like that somehow or another that, that, that God... Uh, felt like he owed him because he was just this really, really intense believer of God when no one else was. The fact is, is that's not true. That God, by his choosing, reached out and called Abram out of paganism and called him to his cell. God chose him. Uh, 
Abram hadn't learned everything that he was going to know about God, but he does set out to follow him and follow the promise that God gave him, which included land, family, uh, being a great nation, um, and he followed God. Now, you may want to write this down because here's, here's the reason I mentioned this, just if you're taking notes. That occurred around 2000 B.C. Now, just remember, when we are tracking dates, we are tracking dates before Christ that come to zero, if you will. In other words, we're declining. And then as we move away from Christ, we are increasing in, in number. But that took place around 2000 B.C., now we see how God promised him a son who was born, whose name was Isaac. And to continue the development of his promised family, Isaac had two sons, Jacob and Esau. And as we read in Genesis and we read there, we know that Jacob, through a series of events, uh, though being the youngest of the sons, actually was the one who received uh, the, the blessing and the birthright, which ultimately meant that he received God's promise. In other words, God's promise was passed on to him. Jacob had 12 sons, one of whom's name was Joseph. Joseph, being hated by his brothers, at least by some of them, was sold into slavery. He was taken to Egypt, uh, where through a series of events, he becomes uh, the second in command of the nation of Egypt. Now, we also know when we were reading through Genesis and we studied through Genesis and just recall back that as, while he was serving in this capacity, uh, God made it known to him that there was going to be a devastating famine. In other words, there was going to be a great depression. But before that great depression, there was going to be a great season of prosperity. And God gave him the ability through this, and we understand that, God gave him the ability to develop a plan uh, to stewarding and storing the food that was going to come during that great time of prosperity uh, to ensure the fact that Egypt, and ultimately we know the end of this, to ensure the fact that Israel would continue. And so he did this. And through the course of that, Egypt was the only, the only country in that region that had food. So people came there. And who would come but Joseph's family? And they came there to get food. Joseph and his family were reunited, and though he'd been hated, he forgave their offense, realizing that God had a bigger purpose in all that had taken place, and then he makes substantial provisions for his family, and that kind of ends the account as of Genesis. Now, as promised by God, they resided in Egypt for 400 years. And we'll not go back and look at that text, but God had already prophesied that this people would be in Egypt for 400 years. And there they grew to be a large group of people who became a threat to the Egyptian leaders. Uh, and the Egyptian leaders sought to deal with that. So they were going to practice population control, if you remember, by killing all the male children at birth. This didn't work. It backfired on them. Uh, and we won't go into the details of that, but they did enslave them. And in the course of their enslavement, they cried out to God for a deliverer, and God sent them a man by the name of Moses to take them back to Cana, take them back to the land that had been promised Abraham. And this is about 1500 B.C., so if you're tracking along, you'll kind of get an idea. So that took place over a course of about 500 years. Of course, we recall how long the journey was, and the people disobeyed God. And, and even when they were establishing a plan to go in and take the land, uh, we know that uh, 
They looked at it. They said, this is too hard. It's too dangerous. We're not going to do that. And God judged them, and they remained in the wilderness for 40 years until that whole adult generation, mind you, just think about that for a moment, that whole adult generation died except for two, Joshua and Caleb. And it was these two men led this new generation into the land that God promised. People settled the land that they were given. Um, We read through Joshua and Judges that there was just constant conflict, primarily with the previous inhabitants, mostly because they didn't do what God told them to do. God told them to go in and to destroy the inhabitants. They didn't. Uh, they made packs with them. They tried, to, uh, they tried to manage that situation, and it was just, just troublesome all the way. And they worked through the next 500 years without a centralized government. And just for rounding numbers off, that would put us somewhere around where? Around 1,000 B.C., Okay. 1000 BC, and it was at that time that Israel established a monarch with the first king being Saul. And if you're not familiar with what took place there, Saul didn't work out too well, and he was replaced by David. And God removed Saul, put David in his place as king, and he made a lasting covenant with David. He made a lasting covenant with David. And if you remember, we looked at that covenant back here not long ago whenever we studied Matthew together, a lasting covenant with David. We know that David struggled in many areas of life, but he longed for God, and the Scriptures characterize him as a man after God's own heart. And then after David, his son Solomon ruled a unified Israel, but it was after Solomon's death that the kingdom divided, and within 300 years after Solomon that northern kingdom, that part of Israel that had separated itself, it falls to the hands of the Assyrians, which was the prominent military political force of that day. That was around 721 B.C. And then roughly another hundred years passes, and then the kingdom in the south, Judah, falls to the hands of the Babylonians in 586 B.C., and the falling of Israel and Judah came as a result of their disobedience to God. Now, I'm mentioning that because all along the way, God had been sending prophets and people to preach and to tell the northern kingdom and the southern kingdom along the way that if they did not turn back to God and begin and repent and obey Him and worship Him rightly, that they would be separated from their land and they would be taken away, destroyed, killed, and taken away, and they would be placed in a place of darkness. And you know what happened? That very thing happened. In the fall of, the, of, the, of Israel to the Assyrians and Babylonians, part of this punishment was that they deported citizens of Israel to parts of their own kingdom. And this deportation process marks what is known as the exile. So when we speak of post-exile, we are talking about what takes place on the other side of the exile. 
Now, this is just a few facts that will help you as we look through uh, these texts together. One, uh, the author of Ezra and Nehemiah are primarily unknown, okay? Uh, you'll see some who said that Ezra recorded it, he could have, and Nehemiah recorded it, it could have. But by and large, it's unknown. Second fact that will help us is that Ezra is broken down into two sections. Ezra, chapters 1 through 6, gives the account of the first group that comes out of exile to go back to Jerusalem. They do that in 538 B.C. So you're tracking along as we started out with 2000 and we are where we are. We're at 538 B.C. And the temple is built, rebuilt in 516 B.C. Remember that when Jerusalem fell to the hands of the Babylonians, the walls were torn down, the temple was completely destroyed, and it was burned. And, and I don't know if you know that rocks can burn, but those stones, whatever they used to intensify and to heat that fire, it even burned the stones that was, the, that, that was the degree to which it was destroyed. So Ezra 1 through 6 uh, is kind of between 538 B.C. and 516 B.C. Then I'm going to insert this just for our purposes and understanding that there is a gap of time between the record of chapters 1 through 6 and 7 through 10. And guess what takes place in the middle of that time? The accounts of Esther becoming the queen, uh, which we're not going to study Esther along with this, but it's interesting that in between times of these, uh, these return, the return, this, this post-exilic return to Jerusalem, we have in chapters 1 through 6 of Ezra, we have that we have this group goes back and they rebuild the temple. And then there's a gap of time. In fact, there's 80 years between that, chapter 6, and chapter 7 of Ezra. And in that 80-year period, Ezra, uh, Esther becomes the queen, not of Israel, but she becomes the queen of the, 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 the ruling authority at that time. And it is through her efforts that the rest of Israel are saved. And why do you suppose that takes place so that Ezra himself can be a part of the group that comes back in 458 B.C. So we're tracking along. 80 years pass. And then we find, as when we get to Nehemiah, that Nehemiah arrives in Jerusalem three years after Ezra. It's all that important. It, it is... Uh, and it's with that background that we come to uh, our text for today, Ezra uh, chapters 1 and 2. Now I want to read all of chapter 1. We probably will not read all of chapter 2 because the majority of chapter 2 is uh, it's not genealogy, but it's a whole lot of names. And not that I mind us trying to tackle the names. I want us to see the names of the individuals uh, as they apply to what God is doing. Uh, and I will encourage you to read through those names because when we get to that, I want you to see and understand that God knows His people. And He knows them by name. 
God knows his people, and he knows them by name, and they are important. The next few minutes we have, I want to point us to several things. You may want to jot these down, and we'll just follow through with them. And, and I'm going to try to be conscious of our time because I know our front end was a little bit long, setting the historical setting there. Number one, God is a promise-keeping God. Okay? So we're going to look, and I believe that Ezra, that his intent, that the Holy Spirit's intent through the author is to help us to understand that God is a promise-keeping God. He doesn't forget the promise, and he doesn't let it go. He remembers the promise, he makes it, and he remembers it, and he keeps it. Even when it doesn't look like that there is a way it could ever be kept, he keeps it. Number two, God provides for his people to fulfill his purposes. God provides for his people to fulfill his purposes. Now already you can begin to think about your own life and the promises that God has made in his scripture. I'm not talking about claiming promises that aren't yours, but I'm talking about, and we'll talk about the promise that God has made toward us and the fact that he provides for his people to fulfill his purposes. Number three, God sovereignly reigns over all creation. You say, well, we, we hear about that a lot. We sang about that a while ago when we sang uh, only a holy God. You're exactly right. We did. We did. Why? Because it's true. He sovereignly reigns over all creation. God's people are clearly identified. That's the other point that we will look at in just a moment. God's people are clearly identified. So already let me go ahead and set the stage here. That if you are God's, you, if you are capital G-O-D apostrophe S, in other words, if you are his child, you are identified. Okay? You are identified. In other words, you, you have papers, and I'm not talking about a church letter. You have been authenticated by a particular work, and if you haven't, then you are not His. So if we are not authenticated by a specific work, we're not His, and we're going to see this in the text today. And then lastly, God's people receive the grace of God and in turn, desire to sacrifice for him. God's people receive the grace of God, and in turn, they desire to sacrifice for him. Let's read, follow along as I read uh, Ezra chapter 1. In the first year of Cyrus, king of Persia, that the word of the Lord by the mouth of Jeremiah might be fulfilled, the Lord stirred up the spirit of Cyrus, king of Persia, so that he made a proclamation throughout all his kingdom and also put it in writing. Thus says Cyrus, king of Persia, the Lord, the God of heaven, has given me all the kingdoms of the earth, and he has charged me to build him a house at Jerusalem, which is in Judah. 
Whoever is among you of all his people, may his God be with him and let him go up to Jerusalem, which is in Judah, and rebuild the house of the Lord, the God of Israel. He is the God who is in Jerusalem. And let each survivor in whatever place he sojourns be assisted by the men of his place with silver and gold, with goods and with beasts, besides freewill offerings for the house of God that is in Jerusalem. That was his decree. All right. Then rose up the heads of the fathers' houses of Judah and Benjamin and the priests and the Levites, every one whose spirit God had stirred up to go to rebuild the house of the Lord that is in Jerusalem. And all who were about them aided them with vessels of silver and gold, with goods, with beasts, and with costly wares beside all that was freely offered. Cyrus the king also brought out the vessels of the house of the Lord that Nebuchadnezzar had brought, had carried away from Jerusalem and placed them in the house of his gods. Cyrus, king of Persia, brought these out in the charge of Midretha, the treasurer, who, um, who counted them out to Sheshbazar, the prince of Judah, and this was the number of them, 30 basins of gold, a thousand basins of silver, 29 censers, 30 bowls of gold, 410 bowls of silver, a thousand more other vessels. All the vessels of gold and of silver were 5,400. All these did Sheshbazar bring up when the exiles were brought up from Babylonia to Jerusalem. Let's pray together. Father, would you help us to understand your word today and the things that we have already identified would you teach us and help us to see their importance then and their significance now as we gather here to hear from you in Christ's name, amen. God is a promise-keeping God. I want you to notice this in verse 1. Notice verse 1, in the year of King Cyrus, king of Persia, the word of the Lord by the mouth of Jeremiah might be filled the Lord stirred up the spirit of Cyrus, king of Persia, so that he made a proclamation throughout all his kingdom and also put it in writing. Now, I want you to back up one page in your copies of Scripture, and I want you to see how 2 Chronicles ends, beginning in verse 22. Now, this isn't, this isn't a, an editorial note. It may have come from the same author, but Chronicles ends... Now in the first year of Cyrus, king of Persia, that the word of the Lord by the mouth of Jeremiah might be fulfilled, the Lord stirred up the spirit of Cyrus, king of Persia, so that he made a proclamation throughout all his kingdom and also put it in writing. And thus, Cyrus, king of Persia, the Lord, the God of heaven, has given me all the kingdoms of the earth, and he has charged me to build him a house at Jerusalem, which is in Judah. Whoever is among you of all his people, may the Lord his God be with him. Let him go up. And then we hear the account again coming from Ezra. Well, what's the promise that he's keeping? Well, the promise that he's keeping goes all the way back ultimately, and this is, this is the part that is, is important for us to understand, uh, it is a biblical view of world history is what is being given. There's a bigger picture pointing all the way back to Genesis chapter 
uh, 3 and verse 15. So if you will, take your copies of Scripture. Many of you are already familiar with that text, but I just encourage you to go back and look so that we can see where this, this biblical view of world history rests, where the foundation is. Genesis chapter 3. I better get to the right book. I was in Exodus 3. Looking at verse 15. The Lord is placing his curse on the serpent. Okay? The Lord's placing his curse on the serpent after the serpent has tempted Eve. Eve has sinned. In turn, Adam followed her in sin. And this is what the Lord God said in verse 15 telling the serpent, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. Okay? That's the foundation for biblical world history, the view of history. That is, is that God is at work to destroy sin and to redeem those whom he is going to. To redeem. And everything else in the place of the world and world history fits that picture. Okay? Now I'm looking around and I see some of you who uh, are uh, work with your hands and do cabinet work, and some of you work at local industries and various places. Some of you have spent your lives uh, working in other places and are now Tom retired. Uh, and uh, all those things, every act, every work, everything that has taken place in the course of the world with every individual fits in to this view of world history, and it is all moving toward God destroying sin and evil and redeeming those He calls to redemption. Let's back back up just a minute and go to Isaiah chapter 44 and begin to see how God is fulfilling this in the course of history. Isaiah chapter 44. Now I want you to remember before you read this that 150 years before Cyrus was ever born, God gave this word to the prophet of Isaiah. This is to show you uh, how intricately involved uh, and how particular God is about making sure that everyone knows that He is God. So if you'll look at chapter 44 of Isaiah, I want us to begin in verse 6, and then we're going to jump a little bit later on in the text. But this is what God says in giving testimony about Himself. He says, Thus says the Lord, the King of Israel, and His Redeemer, the Lord of hosts, I am the first, I am the last. Besides me, there is no God who is like me. Who is like me? Let him proclaim it. Let him declare and set it before me. Since I appointed an ancient people, let them declare what is to come and what will happen. Fear not, nor be afraid. Have I not told you from of old and declared it? And you are my witnesses is there a God besides me? There is no rock 
There is no rock. I know not any. In other words, God is pointing to the fact that he alone is God. Now look at verses 21 through 28. The Lord is speaking to Israel. He's talking about his redemption. He said, remember these things, O Jacob, and Israel, for you are my servant. Now remember, this is 150 years before even the leader that he is getting ready to name, 150 years before that, before, any, before, before there has been any fall yet, Remember these things, O Jacob and Israel, for you're my servant. I formed you and you're my servant. O Israel, you will not be forgotten by me. Make a note of that. You will not be forgotten by me. I have blotted out your transgressions like a cloud and your sins like mist. Return to me, for I have redeemed you. Sing, O heavens, for the Lord has done it. Shout, O depths of the earth, break forth into singing, O mountains, O forest, and every tree in it. For the Lord has redeemed Jacob and will be glorified in Israel. Thus says the Lord your Redeemer who formed you from the womb. I am the Lord who made all things, who alone stretched out the heavens, who spread out the earth by myself, who frustrates the signs of liars, and makes fools of diviners, who turns wise men back and makes their knowledge foolish, who confirms the word of his servant and fulfills the counsel of his messengers, and who says of Jerusalem, you shall be inhabited. He's pointing to something. He said, you shall be inhabited. Why? Because there is coming a time when you will not be inhabited, but Jerusalem will be inhabited. And the cities of Judah, they shall be built, and I will raise up their ruins, meaning that they will be destroyed, but I will raise up those ruins who says to the deep, be dry, I will dry up your rivers, who says of Cyrus, Cyrus has not been born, 150 years before he's born, who says to Cyrus, he is my shepherd, and he shall fulfill all my purposes saying of Jerusalem, you shall be built, and of the temple, your foundation shall be laid. Now go back to Ezra 1. In the year of Cyrus, king of Persia, that the word of the Lord by the mouth of Jeremiah, and we hadn't gotten to Jeremiah yet. We've just looked, we looked prior to Jeremiah, and we have heard what God has said about Cyrus. Now, Let's turn to Jeremiah and, turn to, uh, and look at verse chapter 25. So if you're in your copies of Scripture and you're navigating through there, then Jeremiah is the very next book. Look at chapter 25, verses 11 and 12. This whole land shall become a ruin and a waste. And these nations shall serve the king of Babylon for 70 years. Then, after 70 years are completed, I will punish the king of Babylon and that nation, the land of the Chaldeans, for their iniquity, declares the Lord, making the land an everlasting waste. Now turn to chapter 29. 
Let's look at verses 10 through 14. For thus says the Lord, when 70 years are complete for Babylon, I will visit you. Saying just a moment ago, and I don't know if you caught that phrase, where the Lord descends upon us. What does that mean? He comes to us. He visits us. How do we know that's true? How do we know he keeps that promise and he visits us? He visits us in the Lord Jesus Christ. He came to us in Christ. He sent the Lord Jesus Christ in the same way that he came down. He said, I will visit you and I will fulfill to you my promise and I will bring you back to this place. And and here's the passage of scripture that we take out of context so often, but you're really familiar with it. In fact, you may even have it memorized. For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans for welfare and not for evil, to give you a future and a hope. That word was specifically to Israel about what he was saying regarding him coming to them and returning them to the place that he intended them to be for his purposes and pointing toward redemption. Look at Daniel chapter 9. And I make this reference because if you will recall, Daniel, Daniel was taken up in one of the deportation groups. And here he is, he's prophesying in chapter 9 and verse 1. And in the first year of Darius, the son of Ahasuerus, by descent a Mede, who was made king over the realm of the Chaldeans in the first year of the reign, I, Daniel, perceived in the books the number of years that according to the word of the Lord to Jeremiah, in other words, he's looking back to Jeremiah and what Jeremiah prophesied, must pass before the end of the desolations of Jerusalem, namely seven years. What is the point in all this? Ezra is telling us, this book is telling us that God keeps his covenant promises to his people. And his word of promise can always be trusted. Ezra was telling the story of God's redeeming and the restoring of his people to praise his name and to bear witness in his world in that day. It's a story of God's grace and mercy that displays his steadfast love for his people. Now I want you to catch that for just a moment. God is a God who remembers and keeps his promises. The fulfillment ultimately of this whole promise and everything that God is doing in, the, in, the, in, in world history was pointing to the promise that would be fulfilled in the Lord Jesus Christ pointing to Christ himself. So when God comes and visits Israel, he was pointing to the fact that in fulfilling his promise that he too would come and visit his people. Second thing we pointed out, and that is that God provides for his people to fulfill his purposes. Let's just kind of track through what he does here. Verse 2, Cyrus, king of Persia, he goes on and states what his his plan is. and, and, And look at what he has to say 
uh, kind of at the end of verse 3, and we'll read on into verse 4. He is the God who is in Jerusalem. Now, I, w- I want you to know that uh, God has stirred up Cyrus's heart, and we're going to talk about that in just a moment. That doesn't mean that Cyrus is a believer. Doesn't mean that. Just means that God has stirred his heart. We already know that he is not a believer by this statement alone, because why? What he has done, he has relegated God to Jerusalem. I'm sending them back to Jerusalem because that's where their God is. And he has stirred my heart so that I can get his people back to him. Not that he rules over everything, but notice what he says. And let each survivor in whatever place he sojourns, so wherever it is that you live, be assisted by the men of his place with silver and gold, with goods and with beasts, besides the free will offerings for the house of God that is in Jerusalem. In other words, in his decree, he doesn't just say, we are going to build it. He says, you are going to fund it. And here's how you are going to fund it. For those who go, you are going to support them and give them all that they need to complete this. But notice what else he does. He not only does that, but then he himself goes back to the treasure and he withdraws all of those things that are still, that were left from when Nebuchadnezzar destroyed the temple. They went in and took all the silver and all the gold and all these these instruments. In other words, it's like setting up a kitchen, if you will. All these bowls and all these utensils. He went and got them out of the treasury and he accounts for them and he sends them back. And God is behind all of this. He is providing all of these things so that his work will be fulfilled. Now the point is, is what is his work? What is his work? They are funding what? They are beginning to fund and pull together all of these resources to rebuild the temple. To rebuild the temple. Now I didn't tell you a while ago in the historical context, but this will be interesting for you as you track along with it and you find where we are in the course. We are in In Ezra and Nehemiah, we are in the last 125 years of the Old Testament. About the last 125 years of the Old Testament. And then when the Old Testament ends and we listen to and hear the last word of the last prophet in the Old Testament, what do we have until John the Baptist shows up? We have this blank, this this blank time of absolute silence. Silence from God, not silence that the word is not being spoken. He just doesn't send another prophet until he sends John the Baptist. What is going on here? The temple is being restored and rebuilt so that people will be able to continue to see the work of God in atoning for sin in the way that he did through temple sacrifice and through temple worship. He doesn't leave them apart from this. And as as much as it ran off the train, the track, as much as it ran off the track, what do we see when we get to Matthew's gospel? Who is still brought to the temple to be circumcised? Who still sits in the temple to teach 
What is it that is going on all the way to the very end until the last Passover? The work that God had put into place through this act in the last 125 years of the Old Testament pointing to God was still in the business of redeeming and he made every provision, every provision that was necessary to fulfill his purposes. I want you to think about this for just a moment. I want you to put yourself, if you will, if you can, for just a moment into the place of, of, of these folks that had been taken away. Now, there are some, now remind you, we, we have been not, we're not completely 70 years removed, but I want you to think about how the Bible speaks about lifespan of 70 years. What had happened in the course of this almost 70 years, this time there's somewhere about 50 whenever they start going back, what had happened during the course of that time? Well, many of those that had been deported had what? They had died. We have a whole other generation that had been taught by them. Whole other generation had been taught by them. And notice, Cyrus knows that they're not all going back. What does he say? Look in verse 2. He says, The Lord, the God of heaven, has given me all the kingdoms. And in verse 3, Whoever is among you of all his people, may his God be with him and let him go up to Jerusalem. In other words, he points them and says, for all of those who will go back to Jerusalem and rebuild this temple. And for all of those who are not, you fund it. Whether you want to or not, this is the decree. You fund it. Whether you want, whether you want to go back or not, God is doing his work to fulfill this picture so that everyone will know when he sends Christ to stand in the temple and to teach and to cleanse the temple and have that very last Passover so that all of that would be known in conjunction with what God had intended all along and that is to redeem his people. God makes those provisions. Notice right down to the smallest things and their purposes. God provides for his people that which they could never provide for themselves. Think about this. They have been deported. They have been born and now they're young and middle-aged adults that are present there who have heard the stories of Jerusalem and heard the stories about their God and they are in a foreign land and even when they look back and read Jeremiah, who is not in place at that time? Babylon's not in place at that time. What has happened? Another world power has come and taken over. What can they hope for? How will they ever get back to Jerusalem? How would they ever expect to be able to provide the things that they needed to rebuild the temple, to reestablish life in their homeland when they had been away? Some of them had never been there, had never seen the temple, knew nothing about it. How, would, how could you in the world, would you ever expect anything like that to ever take place? Well, We've got a little bit of an example, don't we? A year ago, would we have expected to be here? No. 
Did we have the means and the provisions by which to be here? No. And, and I just want you to see that all along the way that God provides what man cannot. Now I want to press in on the gospel here. God did through Christ what we cannot. That's the point. That God provides in Christ and through Christ what we cannot. For what? For the fulfillment of his purpose of redemption. God sent his son, gave his life, unbelievable kinds of things, incredible things, does that to provide what we cannot provide. God sovereignly reigns over all creation. Notice there again in verse 1, the Lord stirred up the spirit of Cyrus, king of Persia. What else did God do? He stirred up the hearts of those, it says there in verse 5, then rose up the heads of the fathers' houses of Judah and Benjamin and the priests and the Levites and everyone whose spirit God had stirred up. God stirs up the hearts of pagan kings. He stirs up the hearts of the people that he is redeeming. And all along the way, God is at work in the midst of all of this, and it is his sovereign plan. And it does not negate or set aside anything that you do. You're not puppets. But I was reminded as I was working through this text that Ephesians 1.11, and Booney had pointed to this, uh, I think last week or the week before, God works all things according to the counsel of his will. That is a definite statement in Scripture. We're looking and will in the next two weeks look at Philippians 2, 12 through 13, where we read what? Work out your salvation with fear and trembling. For why? For it is God who works in you both to will and to work his good pleasure. We mentioned Joseph. What did Joseph realize about the sovereignty of God? He told his brothers, what you meant for evil, God meant for good. He didn't negate what his brothers did, but he also pointed to the fact that God was in control of all of that, and they were not puppets. God had not commissioned them to sin and to act evil and to seek to take his life and to sell it. No, he just said, God is at work in the midst of this in ways that we cannot explain. What about the death of Christ? Turn to Acts chapter 2. Acts chapter 2. What did Peter say? In Acts chapter 2, verse 23, he says, This Jesus, delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men, and God raised him up, loosing the pains of death, for it was, him, for it was not possible for him to be held by it. Notice how he begins. This Jesus... Delivered up according to what? The definite plan and foreknowledge of God. What did you do? You crucified him. You killed him. Lawless men. And God raised him up. 
What's the point? The point is the acts and the initiatives of men, they really are concurrent with the sovereignty of God. And we cannot explain the mystery that is there. We can't explain the mystery of how God stirred the heart of Cyrus. Not toward recognizing God as a righteous God. Not toward anything of that nature. But he stirs his heart to send his people back. And history tells us that Cyrus didn't do it just with the Jewish people. That he did it with all of the peoples that had been conquered by Babylon and that he conquered. And there's evidence of it in history. That that was what God had planned. Which brought his people Israel back to build the temple. I want to be very brief because I know we're about out of time here. But I want us to touch on this for just a moment. I want us to see how God's people are clearly identified. Notice if you will. In chapter 2 verse 1. Now these were the people of the province who came up out of the captivity of those exiles from Nebuchadnezzar. He's pointing here. These are real people. Real people that God has stirred in their hearts. Real people with real names that are connected with real families that have a real mission. They have a real purpose. They returned to Jerusalem and Judah, each to his own town. They came with Zerubbabel. Joshua, Nehemiah, Sierra, Rileah, Mordecai, Bilshan, Mispar, Bigvia, Rehum, and Benah. And then he goes on to give us the number of people that return and gives us a total number of 42,000 plus people that return in this particular track back home. Twelve leaders. Four clans of priests. By the way, the priests were 10% of the total. The Levites, who did what? Who supported the priest? What were they getting ready to do? They were going to reestablish temple worship. That's what they were going to do. They were going back to worship God. God was preparing for himself a people that would worship him according to his prescription. Even last week, we looked back in John's Gospel, chapter 4. Jesus is with the woman there at the well. They're having a conversation. And in the course of that conversation, what does Jesus say? He said, those who worship me, worship me in spirit and in truth. Those who worship God, worship God in spirit and truth. Sends back Solomon's servants who were to assist the Levites. And then I want you to notice in verse 59... Um, verses 59, but I want to pick up in verse 62. Verse 59 lists a group of people. These sought their registration in verse 62 among those enrolled in the genealogies, but they were not found there. In other words, every person that went back could trace their genealogy and could give proof and verification of where they came from. There were a group of those who were wanting to go back who could not do that. These sought their registration among those enrolled in the genealogies, but they were not found there, and so they were excluded from the priesthood as unclean. And the governor told them that they were not to partake of the most holy food, 
until there should be a priest to consult with Urim and Thummim. Why did I mention that? Well, God's people are going to be clearly identified. They were then. Now I want you to know the Urim and Thummim were two stones that priests had. One was for a yes and one was for a no. Somehow in the course of the way that they practiced this, when they were seeking God and God had laid on their heart, this is the means by which I will reveal to you uh, whether this is a yes or a no. And God worked in the midst of that and they worked with these stones and they worked through this process until they had vetted every individual. Why? Because God was not going to have the unholy deal with the holy things. Why? Well, for their own protection and for the people's protection. Remember, they are coming out of darkness into light. They had been where they were in exile because of their sin, and he was leading them out to holiness and to follow a holy God. What does that have to say to us today? It clearly tells us uh, that we are If we are children of God and we have been authenticated by the blood of Christ. It's not a flip of a coin. It's not a I'm not sure. It means that we can point back to the blood of Christ and know without question that we are blood bought and that our lives give evidence to that very thing. What is that evidence? Well, The evidence is is that we have a heart for God and we long for Him and we love Him, which brings us to the last point. God's people receive the grace of God and in turn desire to sacrifice for Him. Look, if you will, back in verse uh, 68, chapter 2. Some of the heads of the family, when they came to the house of the Lord that is in Jerusalem, remember, they brought back these articles that have come out of the storehouses. They have come with all the provisions that God has made for them. And now they are coming back. They made free will offerings for the house of God to erect it on its site. According to their ability, they gave to the treasury of the work which was the equivalent of about 550 pounds of gold and over three tons of silver. Why is that important? Why is that important? It's because people that have been given much do what? They give much. And we looked and just came out of our identity series and I couldn't get away from it. God pours a radical love out on a people. What do they do? They just send back all that they have in a radical love back to Him. They desire to communicate with the rest of the world who God is. That's the reason that they love others sacrificially and the reason, as we saw even last week, that they live in the world distinctively by embracing the mission of the gospel. This isn't about how we build a building. It's about how we look to God. It's about looking at the grace of God in Christ. About looking at our own lives to see are we clearly identified with Him.
by looking at the heart of the text and recognizing that he is sovereign over all things. It's a reason that we could sing this morning that no matter what our circumstances are and no matter the difficulties and the challenges that we are looking ahead to a city and we will be delivered out of darkness into light as we have been in Christ, but we will continue to persevere in our walk with him and in our mission until we arrive to that great city, the place where God abides, the place where we worship him uninhibited by sin.